namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sangam namasami some of you have asked for reflections on death and some of you have asked about my monastic journey as a nun and these two are very connected for me so i think i could somehow address both of those questions together and what that means is that we're really talking about all of our journeys whether we're monks or nuns laymen or laywomen we are all journeying towards the same thing whether we're aware of it or not and this brings to mind a quote from i believe he was a french philosopher named tehard de jardin and he said that we are not human beings on a spiritual journey but we are spiritual beings on a human journey we are spiritual beings and the human journey is this and if it weren't for death we would really be lost because without death what would be the limit all of us have seen from this situation here what form gives to us the form of coming together at certain hours and leaving at other times being alone for sometimes being together eating together blessing the food chanting together blessing the space being silent is these are great limits how many people in the world of the billions on this planet how many people could subscribe to this kind of limitation very very few really indeed very few but see the container that it creates and the power that that develops here in this space for us as we try to reach or realize cultivate or develop some amount of stillness within ourselves and if not within ourselves then at least to hold the space to restrain enough so that everyone else is not disturbed by our fumbling and restlessness and anxiety or whatever else we might be going through we keep the lid on it we restrain we train we dig our little patch of the garden and produce whatever kind of bud will come out even if it's the tiniest thin thinnest faded little shoot it will grow and together we create truly a garden a forest 
a wonderful fragrance, and it goes in all directions. But it's the limits that we put to our speech, to our thoughts, to the way we deal with our emotional outbursts. We keep it all silent and we watch, we listen, we feel together. We try to harmonize. It's a way of practicing in the same spirit. So we here together realize our (coughs) spiritual beingness. And death does that for us in life. If we didn't have that limit towards which we go, or which we recognize is within us and all around us, then it would be a misery. Do we really want to live forever? What would it be like? You can never get away from the people you didn't like. I mean, just just project that and see how ridiculous it is to think of being 1,010 years old. Another birthday. (laughs) How many candles can you blow out? (laughs) Everything that is provided for us on this human journey makes wonderful sense. If the trees didn't start out little and grow tall and then drop their leaves, fade, crack, splinter, fall over, and new growth come out of them, then what would nature be? It, would, it wouldn't work. It's because of the constant growing and dying of everything that things are as beautiful, as precious, as special as they are that we have seasons, and that we have the, from the ashes the phoenix arising, so to speak. The miracles of spring that we're witnessing here, day by day. If we only had sunshine, we would all wither. It would be drought. If we only had rain, it also wouldn't work, except in England. <laughs> We would drown, we would, we would be very damp and mildewed. But we have combinations, we have the cold and the heat. And we learn the beauty of each season. We just finished a three-month retreat during the winter months at Sati Saranya Hermitage. It's a monastic residence for women. It's not just one person, there are a few of us. And what a magnificent thing to be able to retreat during the winter when nature seems to be at its most silent time. The geese all fly to the States, and then they come back, much to our delight. The leaves disappear, and you can see the trees totally bare. And the elements stand out so starkly. And we're able, in the silence, to observe our own nature against that landscape very starkly because it's silent, because we stop, we put down our projects and we attend 
to the inner work of cultivating the, the garden, the little bud of Dhamma growing in our hearts as best as we can. It's a precious time. But it ends. We don't do it forever. Monastic life isn't just all silent. It isn't just sitting, walking, um, meditating, and having people do all the other work. We work very hard. And we don't go out and earn money. We don't work as you do. But we do. We work hard. We do physical work. We clean. We repair things. We greet people. We take care of the place. We welcome guests. We feed the cats. (laughs) We do all that we can do to sustain and maintain the place while looking after our monastic duties and commitments. We bring the Dhamma practice into everyday life, keeping a very, very fine level of precepts and encouraging everyone who comes to practice to the best of their ability in lay life, using the training that the Buddha outlined for us. We do these things all within limits. So death defines those limits. And I don't think there's a person here who doesn't know someone in your life that's died. If no one has died yet, just wait. Someone will die. One of the ways that I contemplate death is every night when I lie down to sleep, I always imagine that I'm not going to wake up. And I review my life. I imagine that my body is slowly fading, but I'm watching the breath and I'm visualizing that the elements in my body are dying and and leaving. They're fading away. They're dissolving one by one, starting with the earth element, the skeleton, the ground of the body, the bones. They're dissolving. And I focus on the hard bits of the body, the dissolution of the earth element, the dissolution of the fire element, the energy of the body, the temperature of the body, feeling the coldness setting in. I contemplate the air element, the breath, the pockets of air, the space in the lungs, and just visualize that disappearing, returning to the elements of the earth, returning to the wind, to space, to the sky. I contemplate the water element dissolving and leaving. And then when I fall asleep, I sleep. And when I wake up, I open my eyes and realize I'm still alive. It's like being born every day. It's a new day, and it's a new opportunity to practice. It's, it's like practicing dying, which all of us can do every minute, not just every day. It gives so much depth to each day. It gives so much depth to our relationships. Just to have the, the limitation in our life all the time, not to push it to the edge of life, like, well, I'll think about that when I'm 80. 
Because some of us really believe that we're going to get out of the loophole that's specially reserved for us. Just like each of us thinks that we're the most sorrowful, most long-suffering person here, and nobody else suffers like we do. And in a certain way, I think each of us probably convinces ourselves that death isn't for me. Everybody else is going to do it, but I won't. Well, what about a tsunami? And then we think, well, that could never happen to me. We might think there's something wrong with that. But there isn't really anything wrong with it. It's nature. It's just nature's force moving And we happen to be in the way. We're there. We're like guests on this planet. We're only here for an instant of time. And we are frail and fragile. We are vulnerable. And that vulnerability is so precious. If we did not have the contemplation of death to make us vulnerable, then how would we ever learn the Four Noble Truths the truth of suffering, its origin, its ending, and the way to its ending, the true way to its ending. Because we would be still celebrating all these hundreds and hundreds of birthdays. So why would we be drawn to the Dhamma? To contemplate and see. It's these limits of death, of restraint of our senses, that only through our deep contemplation of these limitations, of death itself, of life and death, of beauty and ugliness, of good and evil, of fortune and disaster, of richness, of poverty, of blame and renown, praise. By contemplating All of these opposites, we come right down the middle and we begin to see what there is between all the opposites through stilling the heart, stilling our minds long enough, long enough and listening, just listening. Helpless, not from a place of power and domination, but from a place of powerlessness. Not even being able to speak. Certainly not being able to heal the body, because that's impossible. But through healing the mind. Healing the way we see, so that we're not looking in a broken mirror, full of broken dreams, which were just fantasies anyway but we're looking in the clear, still mirror of the heart, which will never lie to us. And there is the truth. We just polish it, polish it. We have already done so much just by coming here. This is a heroic step. But let our courage not end with just coming and doing this now for nine days together or later at another retreat for nine days we we need the courage the patience the wisdom 
the clarity, the purity of heart and purity of intention to take this back into the world with us. Just as I carry my alms bowl, keep carrying this water, this pot of of Dhamma reflection or contemplation that you've been adding to drop by drop. Carry it back into the world with you like the most precious thing in your life. The little bud that we've been cultivating. Keep growing it in every day as if that is our last day or our only day. Sure, things are more unstable now than ever. So using limitation as a way of creating a sense of urgency to dedicate ourselves to discovering the truth. What does this have to do with monastic life? For me, monastic life was a death. But it was a beautiful death. It's a death of attachment to the world. However, it doesn't come just by having one's head shaved and wearing a robe. It takes a daily cultivation. In 87, when I first went to Burma, I was working for the UN, and I deeply wanted to meditate, so what better way to spend the waiting time between contracts than with Sayadu Upandita Ji, who was my beloved preceptor, the first preceptor. And uh, during my retreat, there was a woman there who took ordination. And I thought, gee, I'd like to try that. So I went to Sayadu and I said, please, could I take ordination for three months? And he said, no. If you ordain, you should do it for life. For life? Oh my gosh. I was 37. For life. Sounded like forever. (laughs) So he said, you go think about it. And I thought, well, how come she could do it for three months and I can't? And he said to me, you've had enough of samsara. Enough of samsara. And he was right. I didn't realize it, but I went back to my cell and I sat and walked, sat and walked. And then one day, I just wanted to go into the sala, the hall, where he used to give desanas, dhamma talks, to the Burmese people in Burmese, just to sit and listen. I couldn't understand Burmese, but I just wanted to hear his dhamma talk. And while I was sitting there at the back, I suddenly realized that if I stayed there, he might call me forward and ask me again this question about ordination. And since I wasn't ready to give an answer, so I very mindfully went to the door and I was just about to creep out when I heard Sayadu say, wait. (laughs) So he asked the ladies to leave and I went on my knees respectfully and bowed And he looked at me and he said, 
did you make up your mind? And I said, no, Sayadu. He said, are you ready? And I said, yes. Just like that. Because I knew he was right. I hadn't come ready to say anything. But the limit was put. Like, are you going to do this or not? It was like, yes. What else could you say? When the master asked, what can you say? When you know he's right. It was just my fear. I didn't have the courage to say, sure, I can do this for life. Because I didn't know. But when he said it in that way, something deep in me rose up and said, yes. And he said, can you be ready in three days? (laughs) I said, yes, Sayadaw. So he called some of the nuns, and they took my measurements, and they went off and sewed my robes. A few weeks before this happened, I had gone to the Shwedagon Pagoda. Have any of you ever been there? It's a magnificent whole village of temples, but it is one massive golden pagoda, probably the holiest sacred place in Burma, in Rangoon, Yangon. And I went to the Thursday temple. There's a temple for every day of the week, and I was born on a Thursday, so you go to the day of the week and you make offerings. So I offered flowers, incense, and lights, candles, to the shrine, and I bowed, and I made a wish, and I wished that I could become a nun. And then I gave dana at the temple, and the biggest dana that you could give at that time was to light all the lights of this massive collection of pagodas and shrines and temples for the whole night. And so I went to the place where you register and offer the dana. And I said, this is what I would like to offer. And they said, the most auspicious day to do it is on the new moon or the full moon. But the next moon day is booked. So I said, that's okay. Whichever day is available, I'll take it. So they booked me for the next one after that. And then I entered the monastery and I was on retreat. Coming back to ordination, I took the ten precepts um, and I was wearing pink robes and after the ceremony and after Sayadaw gave me my name, Medanandi, that's another story, but I was Medanandi. It's not spelled like that. I was walking down towards my cell and I looked up in the sky and I saw the very top of the Shwedagon Pagoda and it was sunset and the lights were lit and yes it was the day of the dana that I had given a few weeks before because it was the full moon day and there there were the lights Sayadaw had just said, can you be ready in three days? But he had no record of the date that I had given Donna to light the lights of the Shwedagon Pagoda. It was just an amazing confluence. 
and such a beautiful sight. It just stopped me in my tracks. What a joyful feeling to see the lights of one's own intentions, one's own giving towards the light arise in the sky. And it gave me tremendous courage. So the monastic life is really a dying to the world. And when we enter the monastery, we enter it with all our habits, all our emotional stuff, all the years of accumulated dust and rubbish. It's all there. But we undertake the work of monasticism to clear the slate, to clear it, to light the lights of the temple, to express our gratitude to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to devote ourselves to this, not to politics, not to wealth, not to being anybody special because we all dress the same, we look pretty much the same. We have no, there's no fashion, there's no hairdos. There's, it's the same every year, every day. We don't use mirrors except when we shave. We don't look to see how's it going. <laughs> we just know it's going. <laughs> And we trust that. Without that, we really would be lost. And we take what is given. We don't take what is not given. And we try not to harm any living creature. And we're celibate in body, speech, and mind. Monasticism comes from the word mono. Doesn't that mean one, alone? We learn to develop intimacy with ourselves, with the Buddha, with the awakened mind, not the body. The body is death. We get intimate with the deathless, if we can, as much as we can, every moment that we can remember. That's the sati we have to practice, is to remember coming back to that which doesn't die, Because all the pleasures of the world take us far away from the truth. And that's what this alone path does for us. We have spiritual companions, though, and they're invaluable. Just like if everyone here left and only one or two of us were in the hall, we couldn't do this. We need spiritual friendship to hold us. It, it does, it holds us down. You see other people sitting and you sit straighter. You try harder. If not for ourselves, for them. Hopefully not because we're trying to be better. But even if it starts like that, it doesn't end like that. Because then when we see them crumpled up, we also crumple up. It's amazing how during retreats, if one person starts crying, you have to spread the tissues all around. It's contagious. And that's the beauty of suffering. If we can 
get beyond our own little suffering scenario. Woe is me. It's always the ego plunging us back into death, into the death of the truth, because that suffering is our teacher. But the hindrances prop the ego up and cover over the path. We criticize ourselves, we criticize others. We get lost in grief. We get lost in self-conceit. We get lost in greed and in hatred, in restlessness, in doubt, in all of those. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And we can use the tools of the path, our faith, our trust, our confidence, our effort. Even when we're tired, we keep trying. Our perseverance, not giving up. How many times my lifetime vow made me straighten up? One time in particular, I had fasted. And then the next day, the meal that was promised didn't arrive. And I sat in front of my shrine and went into this despair scenario. Oh, how can I live this life if people don't bring me food? And feeling sorry for myself. And the tears were rolling down my cheeks. It was just so dramatic. And then I looked at the image of the Buddha on my shrine, and I suddenly remembered my vow. I made a lifetime commitment to live like this without any conditions. It's not, oh, the Buddha will feed me every day. The Buddha promised me a meal every day. And I remembered my vow. It was unconditional, so why am I now demanding to be fed? I had a big breakfast. It was good enough. What kind of a a nun and what kind of a devotee is devote? I mentioned that today. D is removing every other vote. I vote for the Buddha. A vote for my own awakening. Not for any politician or anybody else. He's my hero. He also fasted for many days. I wasn't really hungry. I was just feeling sorry for myself. That's all it was. It was a mental hunger. I could have gone for a few days without eating. It wouldn't really be a problem. But my mind made a big meal out of it. And my vow just dropped it for me. This is the limit. So the monastic form holds us. It points us. It makes things clear for us. You wear this. It's a robe. It's simple. It's one color. You don't get a new one when you get tired of it. There aren't many fashions of robes. It's just you pick this tradition, this style, and this is what it is. And you wear it until it wears out. Once you've had nine patches, when you get the next hole in your rope, you can ask for a new one. If you've been invited to ask, or in your, you're in a community where there happen to be extra robes, you can say, oh, my robe is in this condition. May I have cloth to make a robe? Or if you have a supporter that offers. This is why the offering of the robes for us is such a big thing. 
because this is what we use for modesty. It's very necessary. And it becomes like your skin, it's precious. So even if it does become raggedy, we still treasure it. Unlike our society that has planned obsolescence into everything now. Why is it planned obsolescence? Think about the reason that things are made so shoddily now. It's just greed. It's just so that the manufacturing can continue, so that people will keep buying. That's how the economy spins. It spins on our need to have new things. If everybody did it this way, then the economy would collapse. But we might be happy. I'm just reflecting we live on an economy of gifts we only use what is given and we use it as long as we can and we wear it with patches and it's lovely, it's wonderful I remember once when I was a quite young nun and Anagarika from Thailand knocked on my door and I was crouched on the floor patching my robe and she said what are you doing I said I'm patching my robe and she said there's so many patches in it and I said yeah I'm putting another one and I think this was very surprising to her she immediately went out and bought me cloth because she felt that you just can't wear all those patches but there is something like the lines in our faces Those patches are the map of what we've done, of all the practice we've done. So are the lines in our faces. They're the map of all the the life that we've lived and the lessons we've learned. Why would we ever want to hide them, prevent them, or remove them? Much better that we remove and prevent the folds and the wrinkles in our hearts and the unworthy behaviors and speech. Those are the things that we should prevent from harming, from creating wrinkles anywhere in the world, in other people, in their hearts, or in our own. But we are so obsessed with our bodies, with how we look. Superficial, superficial. We need to go deep. Deep. And monasticism forces us to stay put. We are committed to standing still. We take a stand for the triple gem, we make this stand, and we don't move from it. We make mistakes, then we correct them. We have a system for correcting. We have the most compassionate system, the Vinaya. It's the system that burns up our defilements if we use it to purify ourselves. It's not about washing our bodies. This is the detergent of the heart. And we use it to burn away our weakness and strengthen us. So we take great care to make a stand in purity. It's the purity that gives us the strength to keep going and to stand tall. Even if we're shaky, old, it doesn't matter. There's only one direction and we keep going.
alone, together. We meet another monastic and we feel such joy. Such a joy. And we may not have seen each other for years, but we feel like the foot soldiers of the Buddha. Like we're holding up the sign of peace, not soldiers in the way of... We're, we're destroying defilements, not each other, of course. We're fighting for truth, to hold it up high in, in a world that doesn't want to know. But to tell you the truth, the world, as we know it, is obsolete already. This truth will never be obsolete, never. It's the only thing worth holding to. We're all running in a direction that is obsolete. So why are we waiting to devote ourselves to this and only this? Whether you wear a robe or not, shave your head or not, shave your heart of defilement and grow that flower of truth in the way that it can be grown, with effort, with practice. So many of you have already experienced the fruits, the lovely fruits of this practice. All the wealth in the world couldn't buy a, a fragment of those insights. You can travel from one end of this earth to the other, but what you travel to discover in your own body-mind process, in the heart of your hearts, in the vulnerability that we touch there, that's where we find the truth. That's where we cross the abyss of fear to the waking up that we all long for. I noticed speaking about the robe, that the design that we sew into our robes is of paddy fields, like the fields that the Buddha saw in India, in Magadha, one day when he was out with his attendant, Venerable Ananda. He saw these lovely paddy fields stretching into the distance. And he said to Ananda, would, would we be able to make these on the robe, these paddy fields? And that was the design that the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis of those days began to use. It was quite distinct from the other renunciants of that time, the sewing the pattern of these paddy fields. So what they are is in this rectangle you have fields and paths, That's what our life is. We have fields and paths. And I think this robe is like a flag. I feel that I wear the flag of the Dhamma, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, is a field of merit. We are cultivating a field of goodness. We're walking between the paths, watering these fields of goodness, fields of courage, fields of virtue, fields of purity of heart, of a level that is unknowable in this world through samsaric ways. That's the work we're doing. We're cultivating the stillness of the mind. 
And that helps us to cultivate the path of wisdom. Using mindfulness as our tool, it's like a little spade. Keep digging and digging, cultivating, and watering it with gentleness, with care, with compassion, with loving kindness, with forgiveness. These fields and paths are such a wonderful sign to us of the work that we're doing together. And our spiritual community now is a hundredfold, but actually it's much bigger than this. Wherever you go in the world, when you meet someone who meditates, you can sit down together. You don't even have to talk. You just sit down together in the silence and cultivate, just like this. We no longer need to be loved. We just need to be love, loving kindness, to be that for each other. And we do this breath by breath, step by step, trembling. The trembling may start from a fear, but if we learn to look and listen to the resonance there. Out of that fear we draw a strength. Out of the anger we draw stillness and forgiveness. Out of the greed we draw generosity and gratitude. Out of the helplessness and vulnerability we draw wisdom, perseverance, and the deathless. A friend that lived with us in England, do you remember Alina? I had the opportunity to participate in embalming Alina's body. And the embalmer, he had a very strange name. It was something like Killjoy. (laughs) It was unbelievable that somebody who was an embalmer would have a name like that. And... This was in midsummer, and she was a very great devotee, as are we, of Ajahn Suchito. And she was too sick to attend your retreat, Bhante. But she came to the monastery, and she was resting in the retreat center. And I remember going into her room. She didn't know she had cancer. And she said, when I die, you can use my body as a contemplation. Well, wouldn't you know it? We did. She died very suddenly. And it so happened that a few of us drove to the hospital to collect her body. And I had to sign as the undertaker. And we wrapped her body in a sheet and put it in the back of the monastery Volkswagen bus. And the Anagarika that was driving was nervous that we shouldn't get stopped. Because... And we took her back to the monastery and in the back of the temple in England there's a beautiful room like a chapel of rest. It's been used as that where there's a very large engraved glass hanging of the Buddha in the lying position. And that's where quite a few people when they die 
their bodies are laid there. And I believe Alina was the first whose body was laid there, if not Morris Walsh. She was before Morris. She was the first. And, she, that's, and that was my retreat. <laughs> so there was Alina. She couldn't go on Ajahn Suchito's retreat because she was too sick, and then she died. And all the retreatants came to the chapel, and there was her body, and everyone was able to contemplate her body. It was just what she wished, and it was a wonderful gift. None of us could have imagined. And myself and the former Ajantania were the ones that assisted this wonderful embalmer to preserve her body because to invite all the sangha, so we had to keep her from smelling too, too bad for about three weeks. And it was the most amazing process. I was quite nervous. I didn't know how I would react. But I was so curious about the body that it was really a blessing. It was like a teaching. So I felt a lot of gratitude to be able to see how the body disintegrates. And when we observe that, we just know that's these elements. That's what happens to them. And it was the funniest thing when Mr. Kiljoy said, would you like me to put lipstick on her? And I said, what on earth for? He said, well, some of the families like it because they want the body prettied up. But we just wanted her to be in her state of dissolution, whatever it was, because for us, that's the teaching. It's the truth of what is. And to love the truth is to be able to contemplate how we die. But how the body dies is not the death of truth. It's only the death of the body. And that's what we need to investigate more and more. Using contemplation of the body to get more deeply in touch with the truth of what we really are. Instead of identifying with that, which is just a composite of elements, which we call myself. And to go more deeply into it, to realize that's not the whole story. And this death is so silent and so still. So when we, we're able to contemplate the stillness of the body in death, I do a lot of hospice work, and I've seen many people become very, very silent and peaceful in their last moments. It's exhilarating. When we get over the fear, it is truly an exhilarating space because from that space we really can continue the transition. We can let ourselves go into the passage way to the deathless. Each one of us will have that opportunity. And this life is a preparation for that. All of us are preparing ourselves by cultivating these fields of goodness, of trust, of stillness, of understanding, of awakening. We will wake up and we will be able to merge into the deathless. 
perhaps even in our dying moment, if not before. Gratitude is a wonderful mind state. If ever there's a moment when we are feeling unsure, we feel like running away or hiding away, jumping back into things that promise comfort but offer nothing real, nothing lasting. There isn't anything that we have in life that is worth keeping. Anything that is worth keeping apart from our virtue, our integrity, our awareness, these fields of goodness, of clarity, of wisdom, and the direction of this work. Putting our minds to true north, directing our compass to the Dhamma. Everything else we can let go of. And when we're forgetting our direction, bring up gratitude for a moment. Bless the moment with whatever goodness you can remember. Even if it's that tiniest little bud that you grew on a nine-day retreat at IMS in April, May of 2011. Remember it.